Well, good morning. As we get into God's Word together, I want to begin by saying, if you are a first-time guest uh, at our online service, we want you to click the button that says first-time guest or visitor and just send us your information so that we can stay in touch with you and get you some information about the church. Also, if you are in a position where you need prayer or care, there are a few ways that you can request that. There's a button on the live stream on the website, the app, that says prayer request. So you can click that button and fill out the form. And then there's also a button on the app and on the website homepage that says care request. So whether you need prayer or care, just find those buttons, fill out the form, send it in, and we would be glad to be in touch with you uh, this week. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Ephesians. We finally made it to Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we are going to learn about the biggest problems that humanity has. Sometimes they do polls and sometimes they uh, survey people. And recently they did a survey of people from the millennial generation in particular. And the question was, what are the greatest problems that humanity faces? So Business Insider listed the top 10 things that according to millennials are the biggest problems in the world. And number 10 was lack of economic opportunity and employment. Nine was safety and security and well-being. Eight was lack of education. Seven, food and water security. Six, government accountability, transparency, and corruption. Five, religious conflicts. Four, poverty. Three, inequality. Two, large-scale conflict and wars. And the number one problem humanity faces is climate change or the destruction of nature. Obviously, all of these problems are problems that humanity is facing. But here's what's interesting. When the Bible lists the top problems that humanity has, uh, guess what? The biblical problems are not on that list. And when the Bible lists the biggest problems that humanity faces, these actually are our biggest problems. So what we're going to see today is the sermon is cut into two parts. There is the problem... And then there is the solution. Two points. Let's pray and then we'll get into the sermon together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes today. Open our ears. Help us to see what you have for us in your word. Help us to hear what you are saying to us through your spirit and through your word. We do pray that you would help us to properly define what our greatest problems are. And then I pray that you would help us to see the wonderful solution that you have provided. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you are taking notes, there's actually a way now where you can print the note sheet if you want and fill in the blanks. Uh, That link is also included where you're watching. Um, But here's the first note. You can write this down. What are our greatest problems? It's the first question. What are our greatest problems? We all know what it's like to have a problem. We all know what it's like to have big problems. I actually found a few people who are having big problems, and maybe if you look at their problems, it will encourage you with yours. Here's the first person having big problems, and this guy can't even get home because of a flood, so that's a big problem. This next guy has actually a bigger problem. (laughs) He, He went away, and while he was away, a pipe broke, and then the water filled up his basement, and then it froze. So he's standing on the water in his basement. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one. Here's another one. This poor pooch has quite a problem, needs help to get out of that one. And here's the last one. This one's just kind of uh, ironic. You've got a fire truck on fire. Uh, You've got a fire truck on fire. That's a big problem. Problem for that person. 
Well, those are big problems, and we all have problems, but what are the biggest ones? I mean, like, what is number one, two, three? What are the biggest problems that we will face? In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul just spent the whole first chapter telling us about what Christ did and who he was and why he came. Now in chapter 2, he begins to talk about us, who we are. And it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This answers the question, what are our greatest problems? What are our biggest problems? And there are four subpoints here. The first one you can jot down is this sin. We walked away from God. We walked away from God. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The idea of walking here is a portrait. It's a symbol for living. So when we walk, we're going somewhere. We're usually going with people and we are somewhere when we're walking. So all of that combined is a portrait of a sinful way of life, a sinful walk of life. And it says that we all did it. In the trespasses and the sins in which, in which we once walked, we walked away from God. The English word for trespass is a little different from the original word. Uh, the original word means to, to fall away or to get off the path. Trespass today means you are where you're not supposed to be. Both of those ideas accurately capture what sin means. It means we are walking in a way or we are walking in a place that we have no business being. So we've all done that. We have trespassed. We've gotten off the trail. We've gone where we don't belong. And another nuance of these words uh, for sin would be we missed the mark. We were supposed to end up in one place, but we completely uh, just, we missed where we were supposed to end up, who we were supposed to become. So our greatest problems start with sin. We walked away from God. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh." carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's one more way we can understand sin. It says that our, our flesh, our body has these passions, these desires. And then uh, it says that even our minds, we have these plans and, and, and these thoughts. And so the desires of the body, the passions of the flesh, the plans of the mind, all of that together shows us what it means to have walked away from God into a sinful pattern of life. So we've walked away from God. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it, it means this. Our body, like head to toe, has uh, struck up this alliance with sin. And when we find sin in the world, there's, there's a big part of us that's really attracted to it. In other words, we find it appetizing when, when there's sin. There's something appetizing about it. We're drawn to it. There's a pull. There's an allure. There's an attraction um, and, and so that's why we walk in that direction. When we think about appetites, uh, more often than not, when we think about something that's appetizing, we think about food. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of food I ordinarily like to enjoy in these days when we are sheltering in place that I can't go out and enjoy. So I get hungry for certain things that are out there that I know will make me happy. Here's some pictures just to prove what I, what I mean. This is a picture 
of a burger and fries. And I don't know the last time you went out to enjoy something like that, but I can almost hear your stomach grumbling just by showing this picture. Here's another one, uh, the baby back ribs. And you can probably, even without seeing them in person, you can taste them and you can smell them and, and, and your body is asking for them. And here's another one. This would be tacos. Maybe you just want one and it's been too long before you've had one. So when you get like a craving for food, that's one way that, you know, our body desires something and often it desires something that's not healthy for our body, right? Well, our soul works the same way. Our body will, will kind of in allegiance with our soul, will crave these, these sinful outlets for desires. And so that's why we have walked away from God and our, our bodily appetites have struck up an alliance with sin. We hunger for sin. We, we long for sin. What do I mean by sin? Well, there's many sins, but some of them could be we, uh, we're tempted often to covet, meaning we see that there's something out there we don't have and then we are convinced we need it or someone else has something nicer than ours and we know that if we got one of those, it would make us happy. Covetousness is a sin when it constantly brings us past living uh, within our means. When we're never content, then we see that there's that craving for more, but it always leaves us empty. Envy is a sin. Envy steals our joy because we think that the source of our satisfaction is out there in someone else. And if we could only have their talent or their life or their personality or the advantages they had, oh, if we could only, if we could only, and then envy robs our joy because we convince ourselves that if we see, if we had what they have, then we could be somebody truly spectacular. Gossip, we fill up on the dirt about other people and it makes us feel better about ourselves. These are sinful appetites. Greed, if we only had more, we'd be happier. Lust, uh, our eyes crave looking upon things that we have no business viewing. Lust, lying, it's an addiction and it makes us look better and we can avoid accountability. Sloth, we just crave to numb ourselves and to just sink into the couch and to completely disengage from life and from others, from family. We despise people, our enemies, and, and sometimes we nurse grudges and replay old hurts, and sometimes it feels so good. And then slander, we'll say things about people just to get that off our chest. And all of these would reflect how we indulge sinful appetites, and often as we do, it feels real good in the moment. But those desires never deliver for long. So what are our biggest problems? Well, sin. We've walked away from God. We've followed the appetites, the cravings of the flesh. The next one, write this down, is worldliness. Worldliness. We conformed to godless patterns. We conformed to godless patterns. It says here in verse 2, in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. It says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Meaning that we were, in verse 3, like the rest of mankind. Worldliness means that our, our lives align with the ways of the world. And if I had to define what the world is, here's what I mean. Here's what the Bible means. The world is the combined forces of culture, government, language, commerce, religion, and entertainment. Mix all that together and you have the world. Culture plus government plus language plus commerce plus religion plus entertainment. Uh, that's what makes up 
the world. Now, these forces are not inherently sinful, but when they operate without God or against God, then they become sinful. And guess what? That is the way the world works. All of those forces come together and they operate in a way that is either in some way without God or against God. And that's when a, a current is created. And that's when a current is created that pulls us away from God's original design. And therefore, the world drags us away from God. That's why we face so much pressure to conform, to live the way everyone else lives, and to talk and think and listen and view, and to do everything that they do, because there's tremendous social pressure to just get with the program. Um, when it comes to being a part of the world, it reminds me, when I was in uh, high school, don't laugh, I'll hear it. I was in the marching band, and so we learned these forms, and we would go out on the football field, and we would march, and we would have to be in our place with a certain number of steps, because if we got out of line, we could get run over by a tuba, right? Uh, so you had to know how many steps to get to a certain place, and then when you got there, you were supposed to be with your coordinate, but the rule was, if you somehow looked around and you were like sticking out, the rule was follow the form, Follow the form. So you might have to adjust a little to make sure you're in line. And that's a really good image of how the world works. Hey, get with the program. Don't get in anyone's way. Follow the form and don't call anybody out. That is a portrait of worldliness. We've got a picture here uh, from Times Square of just all these different messages that the world is throwing up there. All day long, there are these advertisements and these messages telling you about what the world has for you. And they tell you what to buy and, and how to look and where to shop and what to view. And, and I'm not saying that all this is bad. What I'm saying is we're just bombarded today with, with agendas from the world. And if we just say, okay, I'll just go with whatever they tell me, we are going to get swept downstream so far and we'll find ourselves in this sea of sewage because we're just going along with the world. Worldliness, being conformed to godless patterns, is one of the biggest problems that we have in life. There's so much pressure. We're constantly being told how to get rich, to have fun, to look great, to be smart. Okay, and if we let the world define those things for us, God gets left behind. We naturally follow the crowd. That's what we are born into. We learn from the world how to think, how to date, how to parent, how to spend, how to worship. All these things, there's a, a lot the world tells us and trains us, and it's often very different from God's way. And that creates worldliness. Why do we follow the crowd? Why, why do we become so worldly? Well, because the world normalizes sin. It systematizes sin. And it glamorizes sin. There are sinful, selfish patterns of life and the world will normalize them and glamorize them and standardize them and, and it becomes the norm. That's why we just follow the form. Why else do we just go along with the crowd? Well, because the world makes false promises. The world tells us that if we want to be happy, if we want to be secure, then we just need to get this product or follow this path or join this group. And that's a problem when the path or the lifestyle contradicts God's love, God's promise, and God's truth. 
when the world drags us away from what only God can provide and promise, then we're living in a worldly manner. So sin, we walked away from God. Worldliness, we conformed to godless patterns. And the Bible says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Meaning this worldly form of living. Write this down. Spiritual warfare is the third one. We join the rebellion against God. We join the rebellion against God. It says in chapter 2, um, verse 2, or you, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Then it says, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, what, what is that? Well, that refers to Satan who is a fallen angel, and he has many different names in the Bible. The prince of darkness, he's the evil one, he's the great serpent of old, he's the accuser of the brethren. There are many things that Satan is. Here he's called the prince uh, of the power of the air. The air back then could be used just to refer to the spiritual realms. It could also specifically be, referred, be referring to kind of the lower spiritual realms, um, where like a, a wannabe like Satan, who's not God, could dwell. Uh, but in general, it just means that Satan has tremendous power in a realm that transcends our world, but somehow corresponds to our world as well. We learn from this that there is a rebellion against God, and that rebellion originated in the heavenly places. So Satan rose up because he wanted God's glory. He wanted all of God's power. Of course, that's not what he got but he was able to lead a group of former angels into just all-out rebellion. And the Bible says there was war in heaven. Imagine that. Because these are spiritual beings, it's not a war like with muskets where angels are falling down dead. It's, it's more of an ongoing battle, a strife, a, a battle for power over the destinies of nations and people and individuals. And therefore, even though you can't see it in your life, there is uh, there is a realm where a conflict spills over into your world and affects you and your family on a weekly basis in ways that you can't measure, but you know that it's true. There are things in life that tempt us. There are things in life that happen that just alert us to another realm, another power, another force at work. And the Bible rarely says that that becomes a controlling influence. There are times in the Bible where people are uh, possessed by demons and literally controlled by them. But in most cases, that's not the relationship we have. The relationship we have with these demons, with these forces, with these powers, and even angels, much more mirrors our relationship with God. And if we're in a wrong relationship with God, we don't stand a chance against those evil powers in the spiritual realms. And here's the good news. If we're in a right relationship with God, they don't stand a chance against us. But there is a prince of the power of the air. And he started a rebellion, and guess what? We joined it. Each one of us joined it. When we were very young, we learned how to sin. We didn't really even have to be trained how to do it. We just learned. We learned that rebellion sometimes works, and sometimes it's, it's better, it's more fun than following the right way. So we also have become enemies of God. When it comes to what this means, it means that we were part of a kingdom it's called the kingdom of darkness. We were under the authority of the evil one. Again, that doesn't mean that he controlled us and told us exactly what to do. It just meant that we were under his authority. We were sharing in his kingdom values. And we were also, therefore, uh, we were going to inherit his destiny. There's also a kingdom of God. 
And what this means is when we were born, we were not citizens of God's kingdom. We were on the wrong side. Now, it's very important. It's, in fact, crucial that we understand this is true for every single person in the whole world. We are born on the wrong team. We have to have God do something to transfer us, the Bible says, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And guess what? Your parents can't do that for you. Grandma can't do that for you. You can't even do that for you. So we're just stuck when we're born in the wrong kingdom under the wrong power. Therefore, we're tempted, we're baited, we're harassed by temptation, and we give way, we lose our battles, and we, we form destructive habits. So sin, we walked away from God. Um, worldliness, we conformed to godless patterns. And spiritual warfare, we joined rebellion against God. And therefore, jot this down, our biggest problem of all is death. Death. We stand condemned. We stand condemned. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead. Dead. And it goes on to say in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hey, this couldn't be a worse way to describe our starting point in life. We were dead. Children of wrath. We stood condemned, uh, doomed, why? Well, we did what everyone else did. And we did what the devil tempted us to do. And we really, really enjoyed it. We were part of the rebellion against God. And that shows that we are children of wrath, doomed to destruction. When it says we were dead, obviously that doesn't mean physically yet. Death means a separation. So we were uh, separated from a relationship with God. We were dead to him. It does mean physically we will be dead, but spiritually uh, we were dead. That was our starting point. How bad is it when the Bible looks into our soul and gives us an assessment of just how bad things are? Well, go look in a coffin and it's that bad. It's that bad. Wow. We're spiritually helpless. It's all hopeless and there's nothing we can do to change our dire situation. Boy, that sounds like the worst news ever. But guess what? The sermon's only half over. And this is the great news. Because God did something to change all of that. So the second question you can write down is this. How has God helped us? Write that down. How has God helped us? It goes on to say this in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. This is amazing. How has God helped us? Well, it says so many things. He's full of mercy and grace. He made us alive. It says that he loved us. There's all these amazing things that God has done for us. How has God helped us? Well, he knew we needed a rescue and he sent someone to help. I've been, of course, closely following what's going on with the coronavirus situation and things are worst in New York. This week, New York crossed over into over 100,000 cases. 100,000 cases that they are dealing with and their medical system is being overwhelmed. And so the governor 
put out, he did an interview, and he just basically put out a distress call this week. He, here, I'll play it for you. Here's what the governor said. As governor of New York, I am asking healthcare professionals across the country, if you don't have a healthcare crisis in your community, please come help us in New York now. We need relief. We need relief for nurses who are working 12-hour uh, shifts one after the other after the other. We need relief for doctors. We need relief for attendants. So if you're not busy, come help us, please. And we will return the favor. We will return the favor. Wow, you've got somebody there who, he's got so much power and authority and he's so prominent and yet he's just humbling himself and he's saying, we need help. And it's awesome to see people respond to that. Here's a picture of a Southwest Airlines flight that's full of people who are coming from other places to help New York. They're coming to help. So they're responding to that cry for help and they are on their way. You know, how has God helped us? He heard our cry. He knew our need. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. When the cry went up to heaven, we need help. The help was for for being saved from sin and death and Satan and hell forever. And guess what? Only one person could answer that call for help, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came down to help us. He came down to rescue us. What did God do? Well, jot this down. Full of mercy, God sent Jesus to save us. Full of mercy, God sent Jesus to save us. It says here in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. There's not just a little mercy in God's heart. There's not like a thimble full of mercy, like he, he found all the little bits of mercy and decided to do something. He's got this wealth of it, this overflowing uh, treasure storage of mercy. That's how much he loves us. The idea of mercy in the Bible means that God has met us in our misery to lead us out. So we've done something and we deserve to suffer, but God doesn't give us what we deserve. We deserve pain, we deserve death, we deserve hell, but God meets us in our misery and takes us out of that. Wow, God is full of mercy and he sent Jesus to save us because of the great love with which he loved us. Wow, he abounds in love. And he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's a weird thought. God loved us when we were dead. He loved us when we were dead. There was nothing in us that was, that was attractive to him. He didn't look down and say, she finally did it. She finally piled up enough good works to make me love her. No, there was nothing attractive about us. Full of mercy, God sent Jesus to save us. Let's face it, often we feel like God is the problem, don't we? We feel like God is the problem. Don't you, don't you realize that Satan has been lying to you about God your whole life? And therefore, we blame God. We suspect that he doesn't like us very much. We wish he would help us more. We wish he would have given us an easier life. Maybe we don't demand that we win the lottery, but, but we want to... We want kind of a cushy life. We want healthy children who obey. We want to make a good amount of money. We don't want to get real sick. 
And then we're confused when things go so wrong. We're confused by the things outside of us and we're confused by the things inside of us. We're confused why things that are so wrong feel so right. And we're confused why things that are so right are so hard. And then we get frustrated because we don't make much progress. But listen, the Bible couldn't be clearer. God is rich in mercy. He's full of love. He's not against us. He's for us. I'll never forget a picture I saw several years ago. It actually won the Pulitzer Prize. There was a construction worker and he was on his way home and he saw a couple, their boat had flipped in a river. And so he, he pulled over, he had a crane and he pulled over and he lowered himself down and rescued a woman from, from the raging river. Sadly, her husband perished in this ordeal, but he was able to pull her up and save her. Now listen, when the Bible says, because of the great love with which he loved us, it went on to say, by grace you have been saved. Saved. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to save us. This is what Jesus has to do for you and me. This is what Jesus has to do to change our destiny. And the question is, is this the nature of your relationship to Jesus Christ? Do you realize that this is what God did in response to our cry for help? How has God helped us? Full of mercy, God sent Jesus to save us. Jot this down. We were given new life in Jesus. What was our need? We were dead. What did God do? He sent us new life. It says here, we were by nature children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. This concept, if you haven't heard it before, is truly revolutionary. It means you don't just need a fresh start. You don't just need to start doing a few good things. It definitely doesn't mean you need to just come to church, right? And then everything will be okay. Uh, it means you're a lost cause. You are dead on arrival and you need new life. You need someone to do something for you that creates a new you. The Bible says that this is being born again. And Jesus told Nicodemus late at night that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. God has to give you new life in Jesus Christ or you can't go to his kingdom. So we were given new life in Christ. Easter is, of course, next week. And here's a picture of the tomb. The tomb that is empty because the stone was rolled away and Jesus emerged triumphant. He conquered the grave. What makes Jesus so special? What makes Jesus so necessary? Only Jesus conquered the grave. And listen, this was so much more than Jesus just getting his body to come back to life. He arose and he defeated death entirely forever. That means that if you have a relationship with him, he can give you new life so that you will never die again. Jesus said that to his followers. He said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Sure, physically, we're likely to pass on, but look, death does no permanent damage to the believer in Jesus Christ. Death just kind of holds the door open. And Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a promise the world can't make you. 
That's a promise only Jesus can make you. Eternal life, new life, is only found in Jesus Christ. So how has God helped us? Full of mercy, God sent Jesus to save us. We were given new life in Christ. And jot this down. We were saved by grace, not by works. We were saved by grace, not by works. It says this. It says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is so important to understand. There are many who will be watching this this morning and, and they have a false sense of assurance that they will enter heaven because they've done enough. And listen, if you're a person, if I were to say to you, well, why would God let you into heaven? If your answer is, well, I've been a pretty good person. Look, based on what you've heard today, you've been a pretty dead person. You've been a pretty dead person. Sometimes people say, well, I'm religious. Yeah, but our religious works, the Bible says, are like filthy rags before God. Hey, guess what? God doesn't save good people. God doesn't save religious people. God, God saves rescued people. Are you a rescued person? Are you a person who has fallen down before God and said, I'm hopeless. I need you to save me. I need new life. Well, this is your chance. This is your chance to realize man's biggest problem. Sin, we walked away from God. Worldliness, we conformed to godless patterns. Spiritual warfare, we joined the rebellion against God and death. We stand condemned. But great news, God has helped you. Full of mercy, he sent Jesus to save you. He wants to give you new life in Christ. And he will only save you by grace, not by works. He will only save you by giving you a free gift found in Jesus Christ. I want to give you a chance to pray in response to everything you've heard in the Bible right now. So let's close our eyes and let's pray together. Father, I know that there are some who this morning are praising you because they remember the time that they confess to you that they are sinful and worldly and fallen and dead. And they remember now that you were full of mercy and you sent your son to give them new life. And what a reassuring note that is, that we can only be saved by grace, not by works. But I know there are some this morning who either had no confidence before you or false confidence before you. I know there are some who thought they were fine with you, but now they realize they're dead. And Lord, maybe there are some who thought they could never, ever go to heaven, given the way they live. But now they realize that it's by grace. It's a free gift. Lord, I just pray that whoever is ready, whoever is being led by your spirit, that they would respond to this teaching by saying this. They can even say this out loud right now, wherever they are. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Go ahead and say that. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue me. I believe he lived the perfect life. I believe he died on the cross for me. I believe he rose again and I believe he rules forever. Jesus, be my Savior. Jesus, promise me heaven forever and ever. Lord, anyone who prayed that, I just pray that you would fill them with the joy of salvation and remind them that even the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. We know, Jesus, you came into the world to save sinners. And it is the sick who need a doctor, not the well. You came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. 
So anyone, Lord, who is ready to call out for salvation, give them the assurance that freely you will welcome them. And just as Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today they could be with you in paradise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, one last thing. I just want to invite you to jump on an all-church Zoom prayer call tonight. Check your email for the link. But I'm leading an all-church all prayer call tonight from 8 to 8.30. You're invited to be there. God bless. You are loved.